Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm discussing some medication updates over the last year with Professor Bruce Errol. Clinically, he practices at Greenstone Family Clinic in Manurewa, south of Auckland. The rest of the time, he is the Professor of the Department of General Practice and Primary Health Care at the School of Population Health at the University of Auckland. He became the director of the Goodfellow Unit in 2014. Welcome. Thank you, Louise. So we're doing a drug update. Let's start with women's health. Considering the emergency contraceptive pill firstly, what changes have we seen here? So in women who weigh more than 70 kilograms, it's now recommended that two tablets of the Postanor or the Levonorgestrel 1.5 milligram tablets, so that's three milligrams be taken uh, within 72 hours of unprotected sexual intercourse and potentially up to 120 hours, but the efficacy drops off. So that's a new suggestion, and that's what's recommended by family planning and some overseas organisations. There's been a little bit controversial, but we know that in women who are heavier than 70 kilograms, there is a greater failure, and there are many women who weigh more than 70 kilograms. The alternative really is to insert a copper IUD, which is 99% effective, but the, and that can be inserted up to five days post-intercourse, and that then has the advantage of providing longer-term contraception. The Obviously, the downside of getting a copper IUD is that they can be quite hard to get done within five days in some parts of New Zealand. So. And the other thing is that if there's vomiting within three hours of ingestion of the uh, levonorgestrel, then a further dose is required. And, and clearly, if that kept happening, then you might want to think of a urgent IUCD insertion. There have also been some interesting developments with respect to iron supplementation. Can you tell us about these, Bruce? Yes, well, I was delighted to, f- to find the study which suggested that iron being taken on alternative days may be as effective as taking it every day, but with fewer adverse effects. And I'm sure we're all familiar with patients who get GI upsets when they take daily iron. So I think that's a good thing. And the nice thing with iron is you can monitor it and see what's happening. You can you can look at the ferritin and and see what's going on. So if you don't think there's enough movement, you could always go back to every day. Um, and the um, the other thing was there's been a Cochrane review suggesting that for, for women who are menstruating regularly, that they may get some health improvements out of taking iron supplements on a, on a daily basis or alternatively a, a, a alternate daily basis. So there was um, symptomatic improvements in exercise performance and fatigue. So I think that's actually quite an interesting thing. And when you think about it, um, regular menstruation really is a modern phenomenon. The, the cave woman would have had maybe 15, 20 years of fertility. Most of that time would have been pregnancy and breastfeeding, so not very many periods. So we've probably evolved in, a, in a, an environment where we don't need a lot of dietary iron, but because of our modern lifestyles, um, we do. So uh, so there's, there's a thought there. So alternative days and as a consideration for women in the childbearing ages. And interestingly, Bruce, in that Cochrane study, it was regardless of the ferritin that they suggested a daily iron supplementation. Yeah, well, that's that, that's fascinating, isn't mm. it? Yeah, so that mm. might be something um, something to think about. Absolutely. So moving on to antibiotics, BPAC did a 
update of the Antibiotic Guide in 2017, and since then there's been some further updates. So let's talk about antibiotics for a moment. Uh, what about sinusitis? Sinusitis, well, I think we have to remember that most cases of sinusitis are viral rather than bacterial. So the patient who comes in with a cold and a little bit of facial pain almost certainly doesn't have bacterial sinusitis. Trying to figure out who has bacterial sinusitis is quite difficult. Technically, somebody should have had symptoms for 10 days. It's got better than worse, the so-called second sickening, and have a temperature greater than 39 degrees. Well, I can't say I've seen a lot of patients who fit that, but obviously, remember somebody who does look sick, you might want to give antibiotics to, because the very sick people don't get into, into trial. So if you're looking at someone who looks a bit toxic, because very occasionally someone gets very sick with sinusitis and ends up with needing drainage, you know, surgical intervention, that is very rare. Most of the cases we are seeing are complications of the common cold and don't need antibiotics. So I would suggest in those situations, look for good decongestants, either xylometazoline by nose, that's very effective, uh, or reach for the control drugs form and use some pseudofedrine. It's a real pain. You've got to do it in, in triplicate and in our clinic get it scanned and write it in a book. But it does make people feel better within a few hours. Certainly antibiotics won't do that. You're not making any difference usually to the symptoms and you're contributing to the uh, antibiotic resistance. In the United States, acute sinusitis, which is probably the acute common cold, is the biggest reason for an antibiotic. And I suspect it probably is in New Zealand as well. So if we are thinking an antibiotic and we have thought hard, mm -hmm. what are we going to prescribe? Um, I think any of the common ones that are safe, amoxyl, uh, roxithromycin or doxycycline, no indication for augmentin. Um, with this augmentin has a lot of nasty side effects. Um, I've actually had two patients end up on ventilators with, um, with augmentin through liver failure, and um, I've never had that with any of the other drugs, and I've given a lot of prescriptions in my time. So it, it spooks me, and I keep it for the rare things, which we'll talk about later. So moving on to impetigo, what do we do here, Bruce? So impetigo, they're now suggesting um, hydrogen peroxide 1% cream or povidine, 10% um, ointment for five days, two to three times a day. Um, avoid topical antibiotics for impetigo. We need to keep those for nasal carriage elimination. And we know what's happened with those, the, the topical antibiotics, the Bactroban and the Foban. The resistance just went rocketing up when they were made readily available. So if we can keep up, and New Zealand GPs have really stopped prescribing those, the, the numbers have really dropped. So if not, then obviously flucloxacillin, and flucloxacillin can now be given uh, three times a day with food. The adult dose is a thousand milligrams TDS with food for five to seven days. I, and I think with kids, you probably just have to um, approximate that. So a bigger dose, but with food seems to be fine, is equivalent to, certainly in adults, that's equivalent to 500 milligrams QID. So that's uh, very liberating. I'm sure the audience will be pleased to hear that. Well, relevant for the next thing that we were going to talk about, which is cellulitis. Uh, yes, so um, cellulitis now five days. Um, the BPAC talk about 500 QID, but I think we could suggest 1,000 milligrams TDS. It is more antibiotic, but uh, I think the compliance is probably going to be uh, important. 
And if that doesn't uh, doesn't work, then there's uh, a second choice is roxithromycin. And there actually is a kiddies dose now. There's a dispersible tablet. So that might be quite liberating. So if you are having trouble, that may be a better choice or going to some of the cephalosporins. The second choice is, is a bit more debatable when it comes. But I think flucloxus along with food is going to change the landscape quite a bit. And diverticulitis. In mild cases, we don't need antibiotics now. Let's discuss that. Absolutely, yeah. So in mild cases, if there isn't any sign of peritonism, no tachycardia, no rebound, guarding, no temperature, then it's just an inflamed diverticulum, basically. You don't need to worry. If they develop peritonitis, well, clearly they need to go to hospital. If you do want to give antibiotics, it's now suggested that uh, cotrimoxazole plus metronidazole three times a day for five days. But I think we should be trying to keep the antibiotic um, gun in the holster for this one and, um, and avoid giving antibiotics. Very difficult though, of course, you know, you've got a patient in pain. I think actually trying the antispasmodics is perhaps something we can do in those situations. I don't know how effective they are in diverticular disease, but at least you feel like you're doing something and it's probably a lot safer than giving an antibiotic. You know, if we're wanting to preserve antibiotics for our grandchildren, which I'm sure we all do. And then teeth, Bruce. Teeth, okay, well this has come and gone a little bit, but it's now acceptable to give uh, a Moxel so Moxel, one gram stat and then 500 milligrams TDS. Uh, I presume if things weren't getting better, they need to see a dentist anyway in that time, then you might want to flip over to Augmentin. But I think in the first instance, uh, the BPAC guidelines are suggesting a Moxel. So that's a bit of a relief, I think. And then finally, asymptomatic bacteria in non-pregnant women. What are we doing here? Yeah, so um, I guess the key, the key take-home point here is if, is if you find bacteria in the urine, particularly in women who are institutions who have got catheters, then that's not an indication for antibiotics. It's really got to be a symptomatic situation. So we shouldn't be treating the dipstick in those situations. We should be treating the symptoms. So, um, so and you may grow bacteria in those catheter samples, but that's actually, they're probably commensals and we really should save the antibiotics for the, um, for the treatment. Um, so we, we don't treat non, we don't treat asymptomatic bacteriuria with antibiotics in non-pregnant women of any, any age. Pregnant women are a different group, of course. Absolutely. So moving off antibiotics and over to mental health now, Bruce, there are some new approaches to treating depression. What's happening here? This is one of your favourite topics. It is, yeah. So in terms of um, one of the issues with the SSRIs is, of course, um, uh, problems in sexual functioning. And there was a nice uh, little review on the topic uh, suggesting that both men and women can have drug holidays if they've got, if you think they've got SSRI-induced dysfunction. And that is stopping the SSRI after the Thursday morning dose. So this is for the weekend and then restarting it on the Sunday at the um, middle of the day. And this was done over four weekends and there was, there was an improvement in sexual functioning, certainly in those taking sertraline and paroxetine, but only 10% of those in fluoxetine. Um, the improvement was greater in men than women for all three medications. And I suspect that's probably 
due to delayed ejaculation would be um, probably the most immediate thing that would come to mind there. Um, but the, uh, certainly there were no significant increases in depression scores. Uh, two patients in this, this group of patients had, um, had modest rises. So drug holidays are one solution rather than stopping a medication or changing it. It's just one way of um, being able to sort of get an improvement in sexual functioning. Clearly, weekends may not be the, the perfect. You can do it midweek. There's no, no reason to do it on the weekends. But that's just how the study was done. So it was a small study and, um, uh, and based on a small sample size. But it's the only information we've really got on this issue, which is quite important if it's, if it's affecting you. And compliance. And compliance too, yeah. We don't want people um, who are benefiting from antidepressants to stop taking them. So, so moving on to diabetes, Bruce, what's happening here? Um, well, there's the, a new drug that's been funded in New Zealand. It's one of the gliptins. It's called Vildagliptin, and it's a DPP-4 uh, class of medication, fully funded. Um, there's a 100-milligram um, tablet and a 50-milligram tablet in combination with an 850 milligram or one gram of metformin. Uh, remember that metformin is still the first choice, but um, if metformin is contraindicated, then vildagliptin is an alternative. And I think it's probably a good alternative to a sulfonylurea. Um, it has less, a lower risk of hypoglycemia and does have uh, has been shown to have benefit in terms of cardiovascular outcomes, which interestingly, the sulfonylureas don't. Uh, they do lower sugars and they have a lot of side effects um, and they may not be making any difference to outcomes. So I think it's it's great to have that as, a, uh, as an alternative. You do need to monitor the liver function, including the AST. So that's going to require a special request. AST isn't routinely done on the liver function, certainly in Auckland. So just make sure the AST is ticked as part of your liver function. Um, and it needs to be stopped if they rise to greater than three, three times the upper limit of normal. Um, if the patient's got an EGFR of less than 50, then the dose needs to be reduced to once daily. Um, it's got low discontinuation rates. The side effects appear to be mild and it's not, not recommended for patients with um, severe congestive heart failure. That's New York Heart Association class four. So I think a nice uh, alternative, but um, as we've discussed in other podcasts, probably the key thing is, is weight loss and exercise. The drugs have very, very small benefits by comparison to good weight loss and exercise. Great, thanks Bruce. Moving on to osteoporosis now, there's also holidays suggested here. Tell us about this. Yes, drug holidays seem to be the thing, don't they? So patients who've had uh, regular bisphosphonates, if they're P1N1, that's the pro-collagen, uh, P1NP, sorry, uh, the bone turnover marker, is less than 35 mcgs per litre, and the femoral T-score is greater, is better than minus 2.5, and there are no new fractures, so that's a lot. Um, they can have a drug holiday, at least for oral medications, for four to five years. Um, if the T-score is worse than minus 2.5 or a new fracture, then they should continue treatment for four to five more years on oral medication and then reassess, consider a one to two year drug holiday um, in that period if you wish. Um, after five to 10 years of oral treatment, consider a one to two year holiday. The key thing with the P1NP is that 
If you give intravenous bisphosphonates, that's always going to be fine. It's only a problem with the oral bisphosphonates, which may be related to absorption of the oral bisphosphonates or the fact that patients find it hard to take and don't, and don't take it. So you've mentioned who to have a drug holiday, but why are they having this drug holiday? Well, there's some concern about an excess of femoral neck fractures and those getting bisphosphonates um, and, and some other concerns about that. And I guess there's a feeling now that you don't need quite as much of medication. So it's, it's, it's reducing the amount of medication that people are getting. And certainly with the IVs, lenorinates, people are getting good doses. So we're not so worried about the amount of bisphosphonate they're getting. Great. Thank you, Bruce. So now we're talking about opioids. Opioids always require a cautious approach when we're using them, especially in the elderly. What do you recommend here? There was a concern in a, in a study from Canada where they looked at um, injuries and in people who'd been previously dispensed with opioids, and they were much more likely to have a serious injury if they'd been taking uh, an opioid. And this was independent of antidepressants and benzodiazepines um, during the previous two weeks. The numbers needed to harm were 29 prescriptions to be associated with a fall related fracture. So I think we just need to be very judicious about opioids. I think I've really gone off opioids, I have to say, other than for acute pain and short term pain. I'm seriously wondering whether there's much use for long term pain. Um, there's this resensitization that people get. I think it makes people very demotivated and some research from the US suggesting if you take away the uh, overdose issue that lives are shortened by opiates. I'm sure it, it does something to the metabolism. But when you see people on long-term opiates for non-cancer pain, they really look like they're flourishing. They look very like their lights are turned off um, and I've become very leery about that. I sometimes tend to go for things like uh, tramadol, which I don't like very much either, um, as an alternative um, for short term. But I think we should be short, making it very short term. Being very difficult, of course, if you've got somebody who's got renal problems, because it would appear from some of the more recent work that ibuprofen is better than a lot of the opiates. But of course, if people have got um, uh, compromised kidneys, we have to be pretty careful there. So we really do lack uh, good, uh, good analgesia, but I think opiates um, are often not the answer. And then finally, uh, polypharmacy. So the triple whammy is always a difficult combination. Let's discuss this for a moment. Yeah, well, um, yeah, and we are in the age of polypharmacy, and, and we know that when we come to write people's prescriptions, uh, I find if I've got somebody on more than seven medications, there's almost always an error somewhere with us, with the pharmacy or the patient. It's very rare that those ducks all lined up together. Um, and one of the specific ones to be careful about, and this will apply to all practices, is the triple remy. Okay, so that's an ACE or an ARB with a diuretic plus a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So I think, uh, and I'm very fond of ACE-ARB diuretic combinations for lowering blood pressure because I think they're terrific at lowering blood pressure. But then of course, one's tempted to give an anti-inflammatory occasionally or the patient gets it over the counter. So I think we need to probably do a search on our patients and warn them about anti-inflammatories because um, the numbers needed to harm uh, for an ACE-ARB and NSAID are high. Um, it's, or, and it's actually worse if you're on an ACE-ARB diuretic and add a diuretic. 
it goes from about an int harm of 300 down to about 200. So it's not that common, but I think we miss a lot of acute kidney injuries. A lot of people get it, their kidney function goes off and then they come back to normal. Fortunately, the kidneys are reasonably um, tolerant of these things, but I mean, I think it would be hard to live with yourself if you put somebody into permanent renal failure um, because of non-steroidals. And again, that's where the um, microalbuminuria is quite good. If I see microalbuminuria, my reflex now is to say to somebody, do not take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. It may be available over the counter, but for you, your kidneys are under stress and that's going to potentially hammer them. So, so yeah, so I think, uh, you know, polypharmacy, that's a, that's a specific one um, on, on polypharmacy one to watch out for that we can find quite easily in our practice. All right, Bruce, and to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? It's uh, it's hard to keep up with medication changes. It's something that we're having to be on our toes all the time in primary care. Um, the uh, You might want to have the BPAC antibiotic guide and New Zealand formula open on your browser. They're great, great things. I always check a drug if I haven't given it, say, for a year or so. Um, I just go and check up, is it the indication, how the new drugs, that sort of stuff. Um, follow the Goodfellow Gems for updates, uh, Goodfellow podcasts and Goodfellow webinars. Um, subscribe to prescriber updates. Um, and very important to have a good relationship with your local pharmacist. We have a policy of taking calls whenever they phone up so they're not mucking around downstairs with our patients. It's good for, good for those. It does interrupt the consultation, but um, they don't phone up very often. Um, and I do try and do things. If I write something odd, like writing flu clocks, a thousand milligrams TDS with food, I write new way of giving. So the pharmacist doesn't phone me up. So it just keeps everybody on, on their toes. So um, yeah, and the ph- pharmacists are a great source of uh, information and you want to develop a good relationship with them. Fantastic, Bruce. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in a reflection of learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.